Hello, my name is Rachel King and I'm the Programme Director of Word Christchurch. I'm pleased to introduce this Word Christchurch 2018 Festival podcast, Laurie Winkler's Science in the City, proudly presented by the University of Canterbury. Building a city, or in Christchurch's case, rebuilding one, is an enormous and complex challenge. This fascinating and timely session looked at the science that goes into making a metropolis. In conversation with Michelle Dickinson, Ireland's Laurie Winkless, author of Science in the City, examined cities in six continents to find out how they deal with the challenges of feeding, housing, powering and connecting more people than ever before. She visited urban pioneers from history along with today's experts and uncovered the vital role science has played in shaping the cities where we live. Welcome everybody, thank you so much for joining us. We have today the amazing, amazing, look how big your name I is know. up here. Oh, oh they moved everyone. it. It's gone now. <laughs> Laurie Winkler. I saw it though, I saw it. <laughs> who is going to talk today about her fabulous book, Science and the City. Do you know what's delightful? Is that there are two engineering physics nerds yeah. sitting here who already know each it's other. True. So this is, like our, this is like our nice little Saturday yeah. afternoon. Um, Laurie, we're going to chat a little bit about your book, but before we do, I just thought the audience should get to know you a little okay, bit right. better. Um, so first of all, you have a degree in physics and astrophysics yes. from Trinity College in yes, Dublin. And you know, that's quite nerdy. <laughs> and then you were like, no, I'm going to up it a level. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. do a master's in, I wrote this down, in space science and spacecraft technology yeah. from University College London. Yep. That's pretty nerdy. Yeah, it's pretty nerdy. So I have yeah. a question. Yeah. As obviously a spacecraft <laughs> nerd, why did you not write a space book? I don't know. It's, like a, it's a funny thing because I, before I loved space, I loved trains. I think that's probably the easiest answer. Um, yeah, I did, I did that, but it was actually when I was doing my, I had a scholarship to the Kennedy Space Centre in between my degree and my postgrad, and I really fell in love with material science. And it's cool. I'm yeah, a materials exactly. engineer, so I'm very excited about this. There and aren't this, many of us. It's so. kind of how we met, basically. Right. Um, so it was, it was more materials that I fell in love with. And everything around us, every part of the built environment is based on a material or several, in many cases. And I was living in London at the same time as writing this book. And anyone who's ever lived in London will know that you become obsessed with transport. Your life is defined by tube lines um, and how they are connected to each other. So I kind of, yeah, I don't know. I, I would love to write a book about space, but I feel like there are so many more qualified people who could do that. <laughs> yes, but not that write as beautifully as you do. Oh, I don't know. We'll see. So what's lovely about this is Laurie and I met on Twitter yeah. years ago, like not in real life. We were mm -hmm. Twitter friends. Blah, 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 blah. And then she was like, Michelle. I'm moving to New Zealand. I was like, no. And, yeah. she was like, and so you did. So in yes. 2016, you now mm -hmm. live in Wellington. Yeah, I live in Wellington now. Um, just got my residency, so I'm allowed to stay, which is cool. Thanks, awesome. New Zealand. <laughs> which is really exciting. And in addition to writing Science and the City, which is amazing, you also write for Forbes. I do, yeah. I have a monthly column where I write about city stuff for Forbes. So basically, the thing about writing a book is that it's especially a science book, right? Is that it's kind of out of date almost. <laughs> so you ha you're constantly coming up against new stories and new research and you want to keep writing about it. So Forbes were, look, well, I guess I feel very lucky to have that column at Forbes where I can continue to write about some of the things that I researched first for science in the city, but have kind of expanded my knowledge on too. So yeah, I write for them. Um, they're my kind of most regular client, I guess. 
and you graduated and then you went and worked for the National Physics Laboratory, yes. NPL. Yeah. And you did research mm -hmm. and you loved it and yeah. then became a science writer. Yeah. It's a funny one. I, because I, ha I, I had a session with some students, uh, 300 secondary school students a few days ago. And I was asked, like, how, how do I become a science writer? I was like, don't ask me. Like, I don't know. I was always wanted to be a research scientist. I always wanted to spend time in the lab. And yeah, loved being at the National Physical Laboratory. It's just an amazing place. 500 scientists, not university, not industry, somewhere in between. And if you don't know what MPL is, it's where we measure the kilogram, the second, and the meter, and all of the fundamental units of measurement. So being like a tiny wee cog in that massive scientific machine was, was pretty ace. Um, and yeah, I was there for seven years or so, working in materials research, um, doing lots of cool projects. And all alongside this, I've been kind of secretly writing about science, just like had a secret blog I didn't tell anyone about. Um, and then I started doing a bit more publicly and had this opportunity then, which came through Twitter again. See, time spent on social media is not wasted time. Um, honestly, I promise, my publisher, the publisher of this book found me on Twitter writing about science. And he's like, oh yeah, sure, you're quite good. Do you ever think about writing a book? And yeah, put the book proposal together, went through all the hoops and was eventually commissioned. And yeah, so I kind of, although I, I really missed the lab, um, I got a lot of my research kind of itch scratched as it were in writing books. So what I love about this book is it makes you think about the things that you touch and you use every day and you totally take for granted. Mm. Um, and even little things, so one of my favorite stories and it made me think twice, how many of you have ever sat on a swing? Right, you've sat on a swing. Cool, right, we all know how to swing, right? You, sit, you can't walk past a park, especially when there's no kids there, or yes. not just have a sit and have a swing. And you all know how to pull your legs at the right time, right? If you move your legs at the wrong time, you don't swing anywhere. But you know, when you put your legs at the right time and you start to swing, you can go higher. We all do it. But in the book, you talk about how buildings swing in the same way. Yeah, so this was kind of, um, the very first chapter of the book is all about how you build a skyscraper. And I'm not, an, I'm not an architect, I'm not an engineer, so I felt like I wanted to hold the hands of the people reading it. And that often meant me trying to figure it out in my own brain. And the swing analogy was all about, once you get buildings above a certain height, and they all tend to be similar shapes, they basically act like sails, so they move in the wind. And that's fine, our buildings can be designed to cope with that. But sometimes you have swings and vibrations, for example, an earthquake, that are too large for the building's kind of envelope to manage. So in that case, you have to do something else. And usually what they do is build something like a, a, a damper. So a tuned mass damper, is, they're the most common ones in skyscrapers. And the idea of it is when a building starts to sway in the case of an earthquake, this is a, a big mass, not as heavy as the building, nowhere nearly as heavy as the building, but still a big mass near the top of the building that moves in the opposite direction to kind of counteract some of that swing. So it slows down the swing, ideally to the point at which the building remains structurally sound. Doesn't always work, as we know. Sometimes earthquakes are just too destructive. But in areas like, in cities that are sitting on fault lines, you really can't build a skyscraper without something like that. But yeah, that analogy of a swing was, it was, I didn't really know how else to describe it. I mean, we can talk about simple harmonic motion and stuff, but I really wanted this book to reach people who would not normally pick up a science book. So I wanted to try and explain things as accurately as I could, but in 
English as much as I could. So Now, you do have a couple of slides. I feel oh, like yeah. we should do yeah, yeah, some sure. pictures yeah. while we're chatting. So let's well, see. My face. Look at you. And we're going to talk about your obsession God. with tunnels very shortly. Change the slides. Change the slides. But we there do. We <laughs> okay, see now, my own now, face. Oh, let's go back one. So random cities. Now, yeah. you didn't just study one city. Although you were living in London at the mm. time, you did study other cities. What, yeah. study, what cities did you study? Um, initially, I thought that I would find, like, the perfect city. And then I'd be able to write the book on, look at this amazing city that's doing everything perfectly doesn't exist, which I'm kind of happy to say. So I think I've covered cities on every continent where there are cities. Um, and in each case, I tried to find something interesting or unique or really ambitious that that particular city is doing. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of cities. There's lots of London in it because I was there, especially when it comes to tunnels. Um, but everything else takes examples from all over the place, really. And we will go through those. Now, the next slide, mm, yeah. um, I'm going to ask the audience a question. Okay, this is an image. Have a little think. Um, just shout out if you think you know what this is. Yes, just shout, lady. Yeah, shout. Yes. Fatberg. You know. How many of you know what a fatberg is? Some of you. Okay. <laughs> Laurie, this is an awful, disgusting, gross fatberg. Yeah. What are fatbergs? And you can't even smell it. Like, honestly, <laughs> the smell is just, just the most disgusting thing you can possibly imagine. Um, fatbergs are, I call them like a 21st century problem because they're all about our disposable nature. Now, I have this obsession with waste and this idea that we throw things away like there's some magical place called away, where we throw our stuff. But actually, when we flush the loo or throw something down the sink or chuck it in the bin, it ends up somewhere, right? And the fatberg is the perfect kind of description and proof of that. These are, these are like foreman sewers. So I got to get up close and personal to one. And because it has the consistency of concrete, I got to break apart one with a jackhammer which was not something I'll forget. Um, but they are produced by things that you shouldn't put down the loo effectively. So flushable wet wipes, um, that doesn't mean biodegradable. That means it fits down the U-bend. So by that tone, you could also throw your phone down the loo because that's also flushable, right? So wet wipes get down into the sewers. There they meet fats and oils and grease that we pour down our sink and they meet condoms and cotton buds and nappies and all of these things that really shouldn't go down the loo. And they grow to form this beautiful, beautiful thing called a fatberg. And like, so this is actually a small piece that's in a museum in London now. So next time you get to go to London, you can go and see one. It's in a box, you can't smell it, it's okay. Um, but yeah, the one I held in my hand was probably about a meter in width, really heavy. The largest fatberg though, last year was found in London. Does anyone want to guess what length it was? 50 meters? Would that be horrifying? 250 meters. I so said these are lying in the sewer. Yeah, in the pipe. sewer, yeah. So like, because the sewers are cold, right? And all the fats and oils and grease get solidified. And they will form in the sewer and they can get so large they can break the sewer. So you have cracks in sewage pipes that are formed by these disgusting mountains of fat. And this is not just a UK problem, okay, I said London, but I know for a fact that we've had fatbergs in Danny Burke, in Wellington, sorry about that, in Auckland, 
No proof as yet that there's been any in Christchurch, but I'd be really shocked if there isn't. Um, but yeah, so they're a real problem, and it's just about it's just about this idea of there being an awake, you know, this magical place. And so please, if you go away with nothing else other than this image of a fatberg, don't feed one. <laughs> like if you're going to have fats and oils after your dinner, put it in a can, put it in a jar, and dispose of it properly, um, because that's what you're growing underneath your streets. Sorry. <laughs> There we go. We've started with the disgusting bits. It does yeah, get better I promise from I won't here. be gross all the time. Let's just move on to the next Yeah. Slide. This one's pretty gross too, though. Oh, that's true. All right, yeah. so we are going to drink out of the toilet next. Okay, it's slightly yeah. cleaner. So I, this image that you showed to me is fascinating, which is a lady drinking out of the toilet. Yeah, this is my niece, actually. Um, so proud. Uh, it's actually at an exhibit in San Francisco. Um, but this this idea, you've probably heard of toilet to tap, right? This idea that you could drink water that has once gone through a toilet. Now, it sounds gross, and I know it's, gross, it's really gross, but the reality is that we currently flush our toilets with water that is clean enough to drink. That is mental. Like, that is mental. <laughs> and it's because we have these old sewer systems that are all based on everything goes down into one place, it all goes somewhere else, it gets cleaned, and it comes back to us. But in California and in places that are very drought-ridden, they are starting to look at other alternatives, including this idea of toilet to tap. Now, it goes through all of the same processes that your tap water goes through, but it takes a few more steps before that. You really don't want to have any contact with feces. I can't express that enough. So you take one thing home away just today. Do not, just don't touch it. Don't I mean, baby stuff, I'm sorry if you have young kids. That's, Sorry, but generally, you don't want to be anywhere near that stuff. So it has to go through extra processes where it's kind of triply filtered, and it goes through a system called reverse osmosis, where it's pushed through incredibly small filters. It's then UV-treated to kill any organics or anything in there. And they've just had a big study in California, and people in taste tests prefer this water to bottled water. But they didn't know first, They didn't right? know. It was blind completely study. blind. Like they were, I think they were actually told it was like a craft water tasting thing, you know. So they all got to taste this water thinking it was some fancy, fancy water. Um, so yeah, we are starting. I don't think that's a, we want to do that all the time. It's really expensive. But where you have places where you have drought and you have a huge amount of pressure on the water system, and as our city, cities get busier and bigger, that's going to happen everywhere, to be honest. We are going to have to get over our kind of ickiness a little bit, I think. Yeah, yeah so... Back to the poo. <laughs> um, the, the bus over here yeah. is a poo-powered bus. It is. It's the number two bus. <laughs> genuine, genuine route number. It's amazing. <laughs> so this is, in the, this is in the UK, but it's not the only place that's doing it. Um, you, each of you individually in a year produces enough food and sewage waste that you could power that bus for about 60 kilometres. So that's a lot of energy, right, that we're not really using. I feel like everybody should give themselves yeah. a round of applause well for being well so, done, like, well <laughs> so full of yeah. energy. But yeah, so that's the thing. And, and initially, uh, these guys, this is in Bristol in the UK, um, they literally go to a sewage plant um, because there the poo and everything else is biodegraded. It produces methane gas, which we often blame cows for. Um, and that's turned into a methane liquid fuel and it's injected into the engine and that's what it runs on. If you've, ever been to, if you've ever been to Stockholm, they also use this in all of their taxis. So animal and human manure is used as a fuel. Um, and again, this is something that's becoming increasingly common. Definitely something we're starting to see more of. And it's again, it's just, it's again, it's kind of just redefining what waste is, like getting more out of what we produce, not be so wasteful all the time. 
Um, but it doesn't smell either. I was on the, I got on to go on the bus. And you have no idea. It's just, although you can't, I don't know if you can see there's pictures of people sitting on toilets on the side of the bus. So that's a bit of a clue. <laughs> <laughs> so we will be talking later on about smart cities, mm. but we love our smart devices, right? Our yeah. smartphones, mm -hmm. our computers. Like we can't imagine functioning without them now. Yeah. The thing with smart devices is they seem to go out of date very quickly. Yeah. So we change our phones every year or two. We upgrade our laptop. And we magically put them into this away place called mm. e-waste. Yes. Um, what happens yeah. in e-waste? Um, at the moment, it just goes to landfill, effectively. Um, it's, about, it's about 42 billion tons of e-waste in the world at the moment. So that's not just phones. It could be fridges and microwaves and stuff. Anything really that can't just easily be recycled or reused. Um, but there are lots of scientists who are looking at ways to try and extract value from these landfills. Because if you have a, in this room, we have more than 40 smartphones. So there's at least a gram of gold on mind in your, in your hand. So scientists are starting to develop techniques to extract the gold from smartphones rather than always going to get the virgin metal out of the ground, which is incredibly energy intensive, incredibly toxic byproducts. And not just gold either. So you also have things like uh, cerium oxide, which is used in smartphones, and neodymium, which is used in headphones and hard drives. But they tend to be chemically bound up into lots of other things. So it's really difficult to mine them. But we're getting there. And lots of patents are coming out, lots of processes now. So turning a landfill into like a, like a literal gold mine, I guess. Um, and it, it's not going to solve the problem, but we've already created this problem. So let's try and get something more out of it. Now, in New Zealand, we are talking a lot about single-use plastic carrier yeah. bags. And we're all feeling very happy with ourselves that we're bringing <laughs> our reusable bags. And, yeah. and we're starting to move here in New Zealand to think about single-use plastics and how we use plastics and what is a good plastic, what is a mm. bad plastic. But we still use a lot of plastics. And we yeah. put them in the recycle bin. It's yep. another away place where yep. I feel like it's gone in the recycle bin. I feel virtuous because mm. it's gone in the separate bin. Therefore, it must go somewhere special. Um, it, we know it doesn't. And yeah. China has recently told us they're not taking yeah. anymore. And suddenly New Zealand is like, well, where are we going to put yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. Our away place, which was China, is now not there. Exactly. So we keep it here. However, there are some cool people, like in that top image there, yeah. doing some interesting things with plastic waste. Yeah, so, th so this, this is in South America, actually, in Bogota, in Colombia. And they have huge, a huge plastic problem there. And there's an architect who's been leading the charge on this. And it's all about going to the landfill, collecting all of this unused, single-use plastic, things like car tires as well, they're pretty difficult to reuse. All of these plastics and rubbers that are sitting in landfill, they're collecting it, shredding it up, squeezing it together, and producing enormous Lego blocks, effectively, and using those to build low-cost housing. So it's kind of solving two problems at once. It's taking something out of landfill, and it's also creating homes. And most importantly, I think, is they're actually, this isn't like a top-down approach. This is, we're going to go into the community. We're going to train people how to develop this themselves. There's no patent on this, right? It's not, I'm not going to protect this and make loads of money out of it. This is about giving people the tools to use what's already around them to build homes. So a home for a family of, say, four people is about three to $4,000, and they can be built in about four days. Um, and then those people who've built that house go and train communities to build their own houses. Um, and in New Zealand, I know as well, we're starting, people are starting to look at using plastic as a, as a roading material. Kind of mixed feelings about that, if I'm honest. 
but um, it's a really good idea. It gets rid of a lot of bitumen because bitumen is that really black, sticky stuff, really, really difficult to produce and expensive to the environment. So they're replacing some of that with waste plastic. Not all of it because we'd have very odd structured roads, um, but enough that actually could make the roads stronger in some cases. There's a trial happening in Christchurch at the airport um, based on that, removing some of the bitumen and replacing it with waste. Smart. So roads, you do rent a little bit of do, roads yeah, in here. There's a bit of a road rent in there. Yeah. And um, I assume everybody used a road to get here at some point, <laughs> yeah. or at least a pavement. So we can't, we can't get through our cities without there being roads. No, it's true. So why are you renting? I just, I get a bit ranty because I, I know I have the luxury of being a European who has always had public transport at my door. Um, but New Zealand has a real problem with a car. It's actually the highest ownership of cars in the OECD is here in New Zealand. And the number of cars being sold is increasing all the time. And diesel is increasing most of all. So actually it's having an impact on New Zealand's kind of green uh, <laughs> kind of reputation, I guess. Uh, greenhouse gases have gone up considerably in the past six years even. And we can, we can minimize some of that. We can have carbon sinks and we can do other things. But as we are using, if we're gonna keep using more cars, um, we're just creating a really dirty world. And also this idea of, you know, oh, I'm all stuck in gridlock. You are gridlock. If you're there, you are the traffic. Um, so I kind of, I'm a big fan of getting as many people as I can into a bus, onto a bus or onto a train or getting people, I know lots of people cycle in Christchurch, which is ace. Um, but that kind of idea of more active transport, it doesn't just improve the environment of the city but it also actually improves the health of the people who live here. So there's research being done at the University of Otago, which looks specifically at the link between a city's health, so the health and the lifestyle of the people who live in the city, and the amount of transport and the transport mix that's used. So Wellington's not perfect by any means, right? <laughs> we know this. But even if, we, if every city in New Zealand had that same mix, people would spend less time in hospital overall, be less pressure on the on the uh, health system. So getting cars off the road isn't just about environmental stuff. And also our cities are much more livable when we can walk around in them. And that's a bizarre you know, thing to have to say to people, but uh, in terms of economic, there's economic benefits to having cities that are more walkable and less defined by the car and the road. Um, yes. And you do have a beautiful oh, yeah. picture that represents, let's just scroll through yeah. this. Um, do, do, do. Uh, represents if you take people off the road and out of their cars and into either on their bikes yeah. or on a bus. Like, what does that Just look like? Here. So these images at the bottom yeah. show you what. So I think it's like 70 people or 69 people, I think. So it's how much space they take up on the road, effectively. So on the left, you can see if they're all in a bus. Here, they're on bikes. And here, they're in cars. And this is at, this, they're stationary, right? So actually, in terms of moving along the road, the space they will take up is even longer, even larger. So this is exactly the same group of people. And it just shows that the car really just has a disproportionate importance in our cities, not just in New Zealand, where it should be about us. It should be human scale cities, not automotive scale cities. Um, yeah. 
And it's hard because, you know, we sit in New Zealand and mm. like I was in London last week yeah. and I went on the tube everywhere and it was so easy. I'm like, there's public transport. And then, you know, I move around to New Zealand and I want to go <laughs> see my grandparents in Napier from Auckland and I've just... You have to drive. You, you have, have to drive yeah. and it's really hard. And yeah. so the excuse I hear all the time here is, wow, they do it in those big cities, but we, we yeah. don't have the ability to do that here. Yeah, this is like, and I get that. I totally get that. I, I have a car, my first ever car I've ever owned since I moved to New Zealand. Um, because yeah, you do, you just, it's just not that joined up. Um, but you do have examples like, I'm going to say London because it's the most obvious one for me. The Tube Network built London. There was no London as we know it before the Tube was there. So when they, when, it's actually rail companies who had a lot of land ownership and they started to build lines on them. But when, you, when they built these termini at the end of the, tra of the tube line, nobody lived there. In most of the cases, it was literally finished in a field. But they built homes for the people who were building the tunnels and in that place. So that then became a place that they would live. They got the benefit of working and having somewhere to live. So that's the way that London was shaped, was by building a tube line to the middle of nowhere and encouraging people to live there. And that is, I know it's not possible to do, you can't kind of reinvent a city, well, to a degree you can, but that was done at a time when it was the Victorians, right? So they were really ambitious <laughs> anyway. But, you know, there's the Morden, which is at the very bottom of the Northern Line, which is the line I lived on, when they built it there, the village was like 500 people or something. 500 people lived there when they had the, when they had the audacity to build a train station there. And now it's about 60,000 people use that train station every day. So that, that happens because the station was there, not because people lived there and they thought we should probably give them some transport. And it takes bravery to do that. Um, and we need more of it. Yeah. So talking about the tube line, yeah. you are obsessed with tunnels. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. the tube is lots yeah, of Yeah, I, no, I make no apology for so that. So tell yeah. me about your tunnel obsession and some of the tunnels that you've been in. Yeah, so um, has anyone heard of Crossrail? It's a new project in London. It's a new tube network, effectively. The tunnels are massive. Hold on, I've got a picture. I've got a picture. Um, but yeah, the tunnels are about twice the diameter, two and a half times the diameter of the tube tunnels. So they're enormous, but they're being woven through the existing tube network, which is quite complicated, as you can imagine. Um, oh, this just doesn't want to work. Oh, here we go. There, there's me um, in one of these tunnels. And these are brand new tunnels that are being built in London. And I literally phoned up the press team and I was like, hey, I'm writing a book. Uh, can I come and see the tunnels? And then they just adopted me. Uh, so I got to be on the tunnel boring machines and the machine that actually builds the tunnels. Um, and I got to see these pieces of tunnel wall being laid. And I've seen the tracks being laid since. And to see that happen below the surface when people are just going about their business, complaining, obviously, because that's what we do in cities, uh, was just, we do, we complain, um, and that's fine. But, you know, going about their business kind of unaware of this enormous infrastructure project, that blew my mind. Mm. And I've loved trains since I was a kid. My grandfather's a rail en railway engineer, and yeah, I've loved them always, so I'm, I'm, I'm a bias, I know. But there's kind of two things about tunnels. One is that they connect people. That's fundamentally what they're there for. And seeing this done by thousands, and I literally mean thousands of engineers who've built these new tunnels, which will open in December, I think. Um, and to see those all work together, all from different places all over the world, 
to build a new network for London and for any city is just remarkable. And then the other side is kind of something that Michelle and I have talked about a bit, which is when you dig a tunnel through a city, you're digging through time. So you're actually learning a lot about the city that was before by building the city for tomorrow. And I'll just show this really quickly, but um, these were some of the cool artifacts that we found that were found at Crossrail. So they Crossrail had loads of ar uh, archaeologists involved right from the beginning, because London's quite a busy city. It's been built on for a while. Um, and they found stuff like that, uh, the piece of glass up at the top, it's actually amber. And there were gas bubbles inside that that have allowed us to identify gases that were in the atmosphere 55 million years ago. So like building a tunnel for a new fancy train system has told us something about climate change. And also, it told us the bottom right there is a mammoth bone. So there are woolly mammoths where the streets in London now are. And my favorite probably, so I don't have an image, but the skulls and skeletons. So they found some amazing skeletons. <laughs> Plague pits from the 1600s in London. And from those skeletons, they could identify for the first time ever what the bacteria was that caused the Great Plague. So I kind of, I just kind of love that because people think about the built environment as being this thing that's like imposed upon them. And actually it's for us and it's about us, but it also tells us a lot about what we were before. And uh, yeah, so that's, I love tunnels in summary. <laughs> yeah. And we were chatting about tunnels and, um, you know, so the Waterview Tunnel was built mm. in Auckland recently and I was mm. super excited because they, you know, yeah, you got down there, we got you? to name the, really boring machine and like we got to go through it and it was amazing and so I think cool. we called ours Alice I yeah. may be wrong right and then we talked about naming these boring machines yeah. and it's common to name them yes. yeah they're always named women they're always given women's <laughs> names too yeah so it's a kind of a tradition that we think came from the shipping industry you know because ships are always given women's names um but it turns out the tunneling engineers unbe are unbelievably like um what's the word I'm looking for uh, they just, they're really, they very, they're not religious necessarily, but they have this kind of faith in digging a tunnel. So there's a, there's a tunneling saint, which is actually the saint of miners, I think, but they consider themselves the same thing. And at every tunneling site, there is a little figure of her. So even these people who have no religion, it's just, it's luck, it's a superstition that they have. And they always give the tunnel boring machines women's names. Um, and in London, some of them were, came from, um, there's a one woman, so there's an eight, the A to Z of London is this kind of iconic map book, right, which all the streets of London, most of that was produced by a single woman who, was, who walked around with a wheelbarrow, I'm not exaggerating, um, because she wanted to get to parties more quickly. So she decided that we needed to have a proper street map of London and she, she, built, she made that. So it seemed appropriate that a tunnel boring machine would be named after her. But it's cool, this weird, these weird traditions, things I didn't know anything about before writing this book. Yeah. So that opens a whole thing. I've seen a lot of mm. articles. I don't know what's going on this past month, but I've seen lots of articles about what if women design cities? Mm. Mm. And so is there an overrepresentation of a gender who does design cities and are cities designed by men for men? And would it be different if women design cities or do you not think that's true? Um, I do and I don't. I think generally if we want to build better cities, we need to include the voices of those who live in them. And 50% of them are women. So that would be good. That would be a good start. Um, I do, to some degree, I do kind of think that that would be true to have more women involved in urban design because yeah, they're massively over, 
overrepresented. It's, it's men who dominate it. Um, and within civil engineering also, within civil engineering particularly, in fact. Um, so I do think it would be different, but I think it's more, so actually, do you mind if we just flick? Um, so the thing that is kind of related to that is the fact that we are all getting older. Sorry to be depressing. Um, but our, our populations are aging. So they, there are more than 600,000 New Zealanders who are over the age of 65. Any teenagers who are in the room, by the time you're 65, there'll be almost 2 million of you. So that's great, you know, that's a great sign. That's a really good sign that we have managed to keep people alive <laughs> for so long. But our cities are not built for people who have disabilities. And I'm including older people. I'm really sorry if I offend you, if you're like a really sprightly person and you do marathons way, way better than me, good on you. But on average, right, if we're thinking about people's mobility through cities, um, as you get older, your speed decreases, right? We get slower. So that means that we need to think about the distance between bus stops. It means we need to think about the height of pavements and the size of text on, on signs. So this is on the top right, you can see there's a young student wearing a kind of a boiler suit with a hard hat. This is a system called Agnes, which is designed by MIT. And it, the idea is that the wearer kind of gets an approximate idea of what it's like to be an older person. So someone who has slightly more limited visibility or a gammy hip uh, or anything like that. And the idea is to just make young people think differently about the urban environment. And I, have, I firmly believe that cities, if we build cities thinking, putting you know, our older populations at the center of everything, that is a better city for every single person who lives in it. Because we'll have more parks, we'll have more outdoor spaces, we'll have more communities built around people. And we will have nicer places to be. Like there's a thing where, as of kind of paraphrasing someone else, but, uh, our central, the centers of our cities have been designed to be easy to get to, but not much worth arriving at. <laughs> and it's kind of true. Like, so if we have cities that include much more accessibility, so whether that's for mothers or fathers with prams, or whether that's for people who need a little bit of help to walk or need to take breaks more often, that benefits all of us because we create destinations that are, you know, accessible. And we know we know from every city in the world that the older people tend to use their car less. So they are much more reliant on public transport. So now in Wellington, we've had, I don't know if you know, there's a shambles with the bus service in Wellington. Um, but getting rid of bus routes is so unbelievably short-sighted. I cannot tell you because we, there are more of us who are older and the older people need more transport and we're getting rid of it. It makes no sense. So people seem shocked, like, oh, wow, there's all these problems now. And I think it's in Nelson um, where they're talking about the population is older. Yeah, we, we, we knew that. Like, this has been predicted. But we need to change the way our cities are designed to allow for that. And it will benefit, it really will benefit all of us, all of us. Yeah, so women included, of course. <laughs> And so we hate to, you know, think about getting old, but maybe we yeah. all need to just put on an old suit every yeah. so often like that and just I think so. figure out what our city looks like for somebody else. I think so, because it really does, it really does change the way you see accessibility. Like you think about the height of door handles differently. And, um, and it's the thing that bothers me is that when we talk about this, it's rarely it, the conversations at a city level rarely include people of that demographic. Mm. Just talk to people, ask people what they need. Don't decide that because you have been designing cities for 25 years that you know what people need. You don't, unless you ask them. 
So you talked about, you know, older design cities, however mm. you want to word that, should have more parks. Mm. And yet, mm. another rant that you have in yeah. the book... I rant a lot, sorry. <laughs> ..is about having greenery around buildings. Yes. Which I thought would be good, you know? You've got, like, a tree on your building in the city. It's, like, absorbing... Yeah. It's really good. No, parks are great. Parks are great. Um, the thing is that... I'll skip that for now. The thing is that there's a lot of hype around greenery in cities um, in the sense that... I don't know if you've heard of a living wall. I'm going to try and get a picture of it, but it's just refusing to come up. Here we go. So on the right-hand side, this thing is called a living wall. It's basically plants on a wall. Um, but in a lot of cities, these are kind of greenwashing. Let's put up a thing that looks really green but is actually a massive box of soil that needs constant irrigation for non-native plants to be encouraged to grow in. That's dumb, right? That is just, let's be seen to do something green. You can have, you can have living walls that are much smarter. So they have, and actually New Zealand, I think is a prime country for this because you have such amazing native wildlife flora, um, where you can encourage them to grow with minimal soil and minimal irrigation. And when you have any greenery in a city, you've got all these benefits. Obviously, Christchurch, Garden City, and all that. Like, they're beautiful, trees look beautiful, and we like to spend time in parks. But actually, they also improve the air quality of our cities. They provide stormwater runoff, which is a really big thing. So instead of just coating everything in concrete and tarmac, we give water somewhere to go by getting into the soil. And possibly most importantly of all, it decreases the temperature of the city. There's a thing called the urban heat island effect, which means that cities are almost always hotter, well, always hotter than the countryside that surrounds them because the energy is absorbed by all these dark heat-absorbing materials that we build our cities with. If we had more greenery, much more of that energy goes into, you know, getting evaporation of water off leaves that has a cooling effect. And it's real. It's been measured lots and lots and lots of times. And you don't just need one big park. You get the same effect with lots of trees and lots of parks all over the place of a small size. Um, and that, that actually decreases our greenhouse gas emissions. And that also decreases our power bills. So more trees means we use less electricity. And that is a real thing. The living wall thing, and there's some hype around urban farms as well. You just have to kind of take a step back and think, what is practical? What can we do now? And planting trees is easy. So we should be doing more of it. And going back to the kind of aging city, the kind of gray infrastructure, as it's called, um, having more trees is important, especially when you need to take a break, sit down at a park bench and take a rest. Having a tree there makes a huge difference. So we need many, many more trees in our cities. But I, my only kind of, my, my rant is around how much hype there is about these like miracle living walls that will just do everything. And also let's just put urban farms everywhere. I'm a big fan of urban farms, but only when they work for that particular city, rooftop, parking lot, every city is different. Um, and we really need to change our, we need to prioritize green, I think, over gray. So from nature and mm. green through to totally artificial. Now, oh, yeah. the thing I'm most excited about as a nanotechnologist is putting nanotechnology into clothing so we can make smart clothing. Mm -hmm. like, I want my mm -hmm. clothing to charge my phone. Like, I'm excited about that. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> smart clothing yeah. goes to smart buildings. Yeah. And so we are moving to a place where our buildings, which were always static concrete are now going to be classed as electronically living buildings. Yeah. They're going to be able to sense things and change things. 
How are our buildings going to change in the future? I hope for the better, fundamentally. Um, the issue with sensors is that if we keep building concrete buildings, actually it's really difficult to put sensors and stuff in them because they will degrade over time. Um, so having sensors, being able to look at the structural rigidity of a building, constantly monitoring its health effectively is a really, really positive thing. Um, there's lots of cities now that are also putting things like internet connectivity into lamps. Um, because they're already there, right? We're already sending electricity there. It's already like a piece of street furniture. So we can just make it more useful. Let's make it a Wi-Fi hotspot. Let's make it somewhere you can plug in your USB and get your phone charged. Or, or even more interestingly, could we just stand by it and have our devices charged up? And that's happening a lot. Yeah. And again, there's, you, well, you know this better than anyone. Uh, there's loads of hype around um, the use of putting sensors everywhere. But for me, it's about what will we get from it? Like, what's the point? We can put sensors everywhere, everywhere. But then where, what's the point of that? And what are we trying to achieve from it? So more data is a natural tendency of all scientists. All scientists want more information. But sometimes we, we have too much. Um, so people are collecting information for information's sake. And um, what I'm hoping we'll see is lots more um, sustainable materials. So we're starting to see a weird trend in going back towards wooden skyscrapers. So you can build a skyscraper of about 40 stories, exactly the same with wood rather than concrete, as long as you obviously replant the trees. Um, but so I hope when we start to see that, and when we, when we use those kind of materials, actually the ability, the options for smart cities become much broader because we can access our sensors and we can check what the temperature is and we can adjust for the number of people in the room. We can count how many people are in a room and change the temperature because our body heat changes the temperature. And we're starting to see really cool stuff like that too. What about advances in things like photovoltaics? So yeah. do we think that we can have buildings that actually can produce their own power? Yeah, this is a, this is a really big thing. So there's a type of material called perovskites, right? And they're a type of solar, a photovoltaic material. So that means that sunlight hits them, it re releases electrons and it produces electricity. And the really cool thing about perovskites is that they're transparent, or at least you need so little of them to produce electricity that they are almost transparent. So there are people trying to develop windows. So a window that you can look through and you can see the world, but it also is harvesting solar energy and turning that into electricity. Uh, really expensive. The materials are really expensive right now, but that's always decreasing. And solar power has literally never been cheaper than it is now. In most cities, in most countries, it's the cheapest way to produce electricity. So. The more demand we have for these types of materials, I think we'll definitely see more of that kind of stuff. So our buildings are going to be smart? Are our cars going to be smart? Oh, I'm not anti-car. I know I seem really, I'm not, because I'm actually a massive motorsport nerd. Like V8 supercars and Formula One are like my favorite thing. Um, I'm going to get you into Formula E very soon. Yeah, I know. I've, I've been to a so, few. It's so good, eh? It's so good. Come um, to the Formula E side. It's, <laughs> it's way really cooler. good. Um, but yeah, we are going to. We are seeing smarter cars. Driverless cars are obviously a big thing. I just wanted to show you a video. Michelle and I were looking at this this morning, and it was quite surprising to me. Um, so driverless cars are not coming tomorrow. I'm sorry. Sorry, they're not. Um, but there's also been this idea, and I certainly had this idea, that we won't get the benefits of them until we have all driverless cars, right? We need to have nothing or all of it. Um, let me see if I can. I might just go over to the thing. I'll probably can we it. just play it? Just play. Just play the video. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Um, 
So yeah, this is a piece of research that was done by someone I interviewed for the book. And have you ever been caught in like a phantom traffic jam? Where like you seem to have traffic for just no reason. Traffic seems to form and then dissipate. Um, they happen mostly because we as humans are pretty rubbish at keeping our safe distances <laughs> and traveling at constant speed. Um, and there's been this really famous Japanese research where you put cars on a circular track, no bottleneck, right? No reason there should be a traffic jam. And you get these waves of traffic that are called jamatons, actual name. The secondary wave further down the street is called a jamatino, which I love. Um, but yes, yeah, so the idea is that you get these waves of traffic that start and stop um, as, you, as you move through a city. In this research, they put one driverless car so all of these cars have humans at the wheel, but one of them can also drive autonomously. And they just wanted to see if there was any impact on the traffic flow. And what they found was at the beginning, you had these crazy waves. So you got exactly these jamatons, these groups of cars and then gaps between cars. And when they adjusted the speed of the autonomous car, set it to be at a particular speed, it smoothed out the wave. So can you see at the bottom the red line that runs along the middle? That means that there's a kind of a constant flow of traffic around the center. So actually, just one driverless car made it a much more pleasant experience for all of the uh, drivers in the wheel. It also reduces how much petrol and fuel you burn because you're not braking as, you know, as excessively. You know yourself, if someone slows down in front of you, you probably put your foot on the brake a bit more, more than you need to, and so on. That's how they form. And this also increases the throughput of a, of a road. And these guys have just expanded it to look at lane changing, and they still see the same kind of trend. So even when you include lots of lanes of cars, the addition of a single autonomous car can genuinely make a difference to traffic. The thing that will make the biggest difference to traffic is having fewer cars <laughs> on the road, I'm afraid. <laughs> There's nothing that's going to solve that. And so with that, I would love to open this up to questions from the audience, if you have any. There are some amazing people who are bringing a mic. Can we get a mic down to this bottom? Sorry, the mics are at the top. <laughs> Just give them. A second. Questions for Laurie. Okay, we'll take this one first, if that's okay, and then I'll come to you. Yeah. Has anything caught your eye about Christchurch? Yeah, um, yeah, we were going to talk about that. We ended up just getting distracted. Um, I was here a year ago. It's definitely been a big change in the last year, I think. Um, I, I have to give a huge shout out to Naitahu who are doing some amazing stuff around sustainability. So in their, I know in their buildings, they have district energy systems. So they have a system where they're using waste heat from, from water to heat things and cool things. And they've also got a lot of stormwater um, management within buildings. So they're demanding that if you build a building, you have to clean the water locally before you put it in the river, which is a pretty brave and expensive thing to do, but it's so, so, so worth doing. My worry is that there's a little bit of an opportunity lost because you get a huge benefit to that the more people do it. Everything gets cheaper if you do it for a wider part of the city. And it, my impression is that it hasn't, hasn't really been adapted that widely. Um, but I have to say, like, I, I, it was so lovely to walk around Christchurch in the last few days because I hadn't been here in a long time and it looks like things are changing. I, you'll have to tell me, but my impression is that there hasn't really been a very unified voice um, in what the priorities are. I'm partly blaming central government for that. I was going to say national, but national with a small n. Um, 
maybe maybe with a capital N too. Um, but the difficulty is when you have a central government coming in in this kind of a situation, they're incredibly risk averse, incredibly risk averse, just because of how they have to be. Whereas in a city like Christchurch, you know what you need as a city, right? You know what your priorities are and the things you would like to have for your future of your city. And getting central government in kind of, I, my impression, again, I'm sorry if this offends anyone, is that that muddied that water a bit. Um, so there's still plenty of opportunity and I'm seeing, there's some, as I said, there's some amazing projects happening that other cities could really start to look to Christchurch for leader, leadership on. But um, yeah, it's, it's both a great thing and a bit of a sad thing for me, but I, I don't know what it's like for you guys. Like, how do you feel your city's improved in the last few years? Happy, not happy? Sad, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do feel that, yeah. Yeah, because that's the, that, that's the, like, not that there are any posit positives that come out of something as serious as an earthquake, but it's just, that's your opportunity to reinvent the city or to build the city of tomorrow. Like, the Christchurch of tomorrow rather than the Christchurch that fulfills what's needed today. Um, yeah, so you have an opportunity to be brave and bold. And I don't think it's completely lost, though. I really don't. I really don't. There's still loads of scope to, to do more of it. And my, my in-laws live here and have moved out of the city, lost their house in the quake. And um, so I kind of, I get to come here a lot, which is good. But I don't think it's completely opportunity lost. But I, I think that you have, you as Christchurch residents, you have this power to demand bravery and to build a city that is more sustainable rather than just working. A functioning city is great, obviously, but you want one that's like leading, and that people are talking about and looking to and going, wow, we should do that. Not just rebuilding the old for the sake of it. Yeah. Yes. In a way, this Ooh. is a related question. Okay. Uh, because the process has been delightfully clear, but one thing has remained unclear to me. Okay. If you have scientifically studied mm -hmm. cities on the various citified continents, why on earth did you come to Wellington and not <laughs> Christchurch? That's a good question. Uh, yeah, it was a man. I'll blame him. Um, but no, I have to say, like, it, that has been a big change for me. Uh, the lack of tunnels is a real problem. I don't know why. Like, I swear, it's, like, so weird to me. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I, and I thought, I kind of, I mean, New Zealand does a lot of stuff really well. You've got to give yourself some serious credit, and you don't, by the way. You're, like, the most, like, unbelievably just, oh, ridiculous. Why are you doing that? Oh, it's not really a big deal. It's a massive deal. Um, <laughs> but yeah, New Zealand does a lot of stuff well, especially the energy mix. The energy mix is the envy of the world, and you should be very proud of that. Um, the disparate, the kind of disparate populations are difficult. It makes things difficult for urban development. Auckland, I've lost all hope, frankly, for Auckland. <laughs> uh, it's just too big, it's gone too crazy, and there's too many people there who just want to build more roads, and what we actually need are more connections, which aren't the same thing. Um, but yeah, I like Wellington. New Zealand's great. Yeah, just be nicer to yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, right at the... Back. Oh, you're just going to run up and down the stairs. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah, stand up. That's better. What do you do with the fat bird once it's broken up? 
Very good question. Such a good question. Um, most of the time, they just literally leave it in a landfill. It's ironic, eh? But there's some places that are starting to turn it into fuel. Can't tell you about it yet, because <laughs> it's not official, it's not happening. Um, but yeah, they're, they're going to try and turn it into fuel for vehicles. Because again, there's loads of energy in there, all fats and oils and greases. So that's a really good question. But I have to say, it is the stinkiest thing I've ever, ever had the experience of being in a room with. Stinky. So there's a lot of useful stuff in there. Thank you for that question. Yeah, one question. Um, so you talk a lot about making connections in tunnels. And in New Zealand, we have less of those things. Do you think it's feasible that New Zealand cities can develop more of those in the future? Or do you think we're being unrealistic by thinking about that? No, I think you have to do it. I don't think you've got any choice, like, honestly. Like, the difference, like, the difference between intercity connections, that's... New Zealand is spread out. <laughs> Lots of tiny pockets of people over a large area. There's very little in the sense, I mean, obviously more trains, but I'm not, you, you know my position on that. Love trains. But um, within cities, we definitely can do more. Definitely can do more. And one of the things that is really upsetting about Wellington is they've just taken away the trolley buses, which were much, much better for the environment. Oh, so they're going to replace them with, with fuel cell buses, which is fantastic. But in like three years' time, so instead of just leaving the trolley buses for an extra three years, they've now put diesel buses back on the streets. So there's some researchers at Victoria University who are looking at air quality in Wellington, which should be quite interesting to see how it changes with this transition. But yeah, so I do think we have loads of opportunity to do that. I love the cycle hire scheme here. It makes a big difference. Very, very popular in lots of cities now. Just to join those dots, even if there aren't bus routes, just to make that that little bit easier. But we really, we really don't have a choice. Our cities are completely at their limits in terms of their infrastructure. So we have to be brave. And that's so difficult for governments because they're thinking about the next term. But you who live here, who want to live here and who love the city, and you want to build a greener, better city, that's, you just have to keep demanding action from them. One last question. Can I'll be we, outside as well, so come yeah, and chat to me. Yeah. One final question here. Larry will be available. Yeah. She'll be signing books at the end, so if you can't get them all, then don't panic. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. To what extent are you working with local government to pass on these ideas? That's a really good question. I have been literally cold calling city council since I've arrived, and I've only had one take me up on having a chat. <laughs> which is Wellington. Um, but yeah, I, I really want to do more of it. So, I, and it's not because I think I'm an expert. It's just because I've spent two years looking at examples from all over the world. And that's not something that people who work in city and urban development have time to do, because they're literally just trying to do their job. So if I can help at all, I will. Um, but yeah, so far, it hasn't been massively successful. 18 months in. So we'll see. I'll keep harassing them, though. Don't you worry. <laughs> Now, Laurie, you are going to be available yeah. for book yes, signing I'll be at outside. the yeah. end. Before we thank you for your amazing speech today, can you just stand up for me, please? Yes. Yeah. It's not often that people dress like their oh, book. Oh, yeah, that's true. However, that's can true. we just... So, Laurie <laughs> has the most amazing skyscape. <laughs> yeah. My skirt. Not only do you have a skirt that has city infrastructure on it, yeah. as well as custom-made jewellery, yeah. you made the skirt I yourself, yeah. which is totally ridiculous. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> author of Science in the City, Laurie Winkler. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Thank you, Dan. You're a legend. Thank you.